2: In March 1615, Sir Thomas Roe set out for India. He was to be the East India Company and King James VI and I's first ambassador to the court of one of the largest and wealthiest empires in the world, that of the Mughal Emperor Jahangir. In the years Roe spent in India, he kept an almost daily journal of what he found. He wrote letters and reports home, He described the power, splendour and opulence of Jahangir's court almost despite himself, for he prided himself on preserving a sense of his own religious and racial superiority. He went to request a bilateral trade agreement with the Mughals without ever realising quite how much it was not in Mughal interests to agree such a thing. He came to learn that the deck was not stacked in his favour. He was the first English ambassador to India and it would be a long time before there was another. Rowe's embassy complicates the story of the inexorable rise of the Raj. But while his advice on how to handle trade relations with India was not heeded, his opinion of the character of Indians and how thus to negotiate with them became embedded in the exoticizing narrative that shaped later colonial ventures. Rose Journey is the subject of a vivid and scholarly new book by Professor Nandini Das, today's guest. The book is called Courting India, England, Mughal India and the Origins of Empire. Nandini Das is Professor of Early Modern Literature and Culture in the English faculty at the University of Oxford and a Fellow of Exeter College Oxford. A BBC New Generation Thinker, she has presented television and radio programmes, including Tales of Tudor Travel, the Explorer's Handbook on BBC4, and she edited The Cambridge History of Travel Writing. Courting India is her first book for a general readership, and it's a wonderful debut. Professor Das, welcome to Not Just the Tudors. I am absolutely delighted to have a chance to speak to you about this wonderful and important work. Thank you for coming on. It's a pleasure. So the first question I have is kind of a matter of curiosity, because I was thinking, now why does a professor of English literature decide to write a book about a historical story? And I thought perhaps the answer lay in the sources that we have. Is that the case? And can you tell us a bit about them? It's partly that. It is
1: a wonderful story in very many ways, but I suppose it goes back to something else that I've always been interested in. And that's about the connection between narrative and history as we know it. History is always in some ways about telling a story. And the way we tell that story, the evidence that we gather in order to tell that story in some ways is very much a case of a combination of rhetoric and narrative and our memories of what our audiences expect. The person at the center of my book, Thomas Rowe, is keenly aware of that. He's writing, juggling multiple balls most of the time in terms of his readership when you and I write for readers, we are conscious of having this faceless, nameless collection of people who are going to be reading our books. For Roe, the challenge was very different. He knew exactly who was going to be reading what he was writing, and he tailors it accordingly. So that kind of piques my literary interest to some extent, but also the opportunity to look at some of those beginnings of memory and storytelling on which so much of later stories, narrativisation of India depends on from this period.
2: And the story you've created is a rich one that brings us to hear Rose's voice, but also many other voices beside that. Perhaps we ought to dial back a little bit, though, and introduce him. Can you give us a sense of who he was and situate him for us in his world? Because he's very well connected, isn't he? This is a story
1: which begins in the very early days of the 17th century. The East India Company is a fledgling company. James I has initially come to the throne at this point, And there is a really active interest among English merchants about widening their field going beyond Europe to carve out new business connections, essentially. And that's where Roe comes in. He's not off the top rung of aristocrats. He's that peculiar combination of a degree of courtly glitz, along with very solid mercantile savvy. His grandfather and his uncle are Lord Mayors of London. So there's that sense of business connections on one side. And his mother, who's widowed very young, marries into the courtly society. So there's good connections there. So in a way, Roe is interesting because he's always caught in the middle somehow, whether it's between two countries or two social classes or, in fact, two employers, his king and the East India Company.
2: And among his friends were people whose names we know Ben Johnson. Yes. Sends him a poem of advice and John Donne.
1: This is the interesting thing about Thomas Rowe because you know how you have those familiar faces that you sometimes see in the corners of photographs. Rowe is the archetypal historical photobomber in some ways because he crops up in other people's lives so frequently, much better known people He's walking around in very well-connected society. So there are people like the poet John Donne, who at one point writes a letter to another common friend about talking Rowe through one of his early heartbreaks, for instance. There's the playwright Ben Johnson. There are numerous other figures like that, on whose margins of whose lives Rowe is a constant presence in some ways. So I suppose his moment was supposed to come at some point, to be in the centre
2: and what was his previous diplomatic experience before India?
1: None at all. <laughs> Rowe is a gentleman of the court in the final years of Elizabeth I's reign, and then happens to get a fairly cushy court employment, so to say, in the courts of the two young prince and princesses, Elizabeth James I's daughter, and Henry, Prince of Wales. His only global encounters before these are on the sidelines. So he's someone who accompanies the Earl of Nottingham during his trip to Spain to sign this great Anglo-Spanish peace treaty, essentially. But he's one of 600 people who go on this embassy. Nottingham is keen to make a huge impression. So there's an enormous retinue. And Roe is a young man in his 20s who rides along His next embassy or rather expedition outwards is to Guyana and South America. But again, it doesn't really emerge as anything notable. He never does manage to find El Dorado, which is what he was hoping he'd be able to find. And he writes back an enormously grumpy letter about how he's ruined his fortunes and never found a straw's worth of gold through this expedition So it's a little bit of a surprise when he is appointed as the ambassador for this huge kind of undertaking, the first English embassy to India, to Mughal Empire, which is one of the most powerful empires of global geopolitics at this point. But in a way, that is also, I think, partly the rationale. He is not so known as his political and global geopolitical stances can be easily deciphered. But he's known as a faithful, efficient Protestant Englishman.
2: Tell me a bit more about that outlook of his. At one point, you say he's shaped by the late Elizabethan Armada-fjord Protestant seafaring. Can you give us a bit of a sense of his worldview and what difference that would make? I think for that,
1: we need to understand, to some extent, a real generational conflict in James I's court, which is the brewing but somewhat undercover rivalry between James himself, his pacifist views. James fancies himself as this peaceful monarch who will bring peace not only to England and Scotland, but to wider Europe, continental Europe. And on the other hand, his up and coming son, this young hope of England, who has been very ambitiously and pointedly named Henry by James himself. So he's brought it on himself. But Henry is very much a forward Protestant, as people would call it. So he's very much on the side of people who would say, look, Protestant England needs to step up and face off the Catholic threat of Spain and continental Europe and make its identity in the world. And that is the coterie in which Roe cuts his political teeth. So this is exactly the kind of rhetoric that will imbue his political vision for years and decades to come, the sense of a real Protestant political and religious destiny.
2: You're giving a bit of a sense there of the international context. Can you set the scene in terms of trade and the involvement of the East India Company and indeed what the East India Company was at this early stage?
0: The East India
1: Company got its trading license in the very late twilight hours of Elizabeth I's reign and it has been moving along in stops and starts since then. Its first couple of voyages have been hugely successful. It's turned around a huge profit but it's nowhere near its main political and trade competitors on the global stage. Portuguese and the up-and-coming Dutch essentially The problem is that the East India Company merchants are monumentally conscious of this, but they're also deeply conscious that their hands are tied, particularly when it comes to the great imperial courts that kind of dominate that international geopolitical scene. So if you think about international trade and politics in this period, most of the kind of economic negotiations globally are not being controlled by Europe and certainly not by England. They're being controlled by three Islamic empires, essentially, the Ottomans, the Mughals and the Safavids in Persia, in modern-day Iran, on the one side, and on the other side by Qing dynasty in China. Among these four superpowers the Europeans have just about started making their connections. So the Portuguese, for instance, have been in India for about a century before the English really arrived there. So when our story begins, 1604-05, the East India Company is hugely conscious that they need to make a stake for their presence in South Asia. And that's where Rose involvement comes in.
2: And why did they need Roe in India? And I suppose also, why did he need to go?
1: The East India Company had been trying for ages to get what were called trading permits. So that was their reasoning for getting not specifically Roe, but the way they put it initially was, it has to be someone suitably aristocratic, suitably well-versed in diplomatic and courtly behaviour, and preferably well-spoken and good-looking. Because we need to make a good impression. And here was their problem. So far, for those first 10, 12 years of their presence in India, as they're setting up their warehouses and making their trade connections, they've been desperately trying to get what are called trading firman or permits. Now, without these permits, they can't do anything in Mughal India. They can't board their ships. They can't unpack and unload ship's offerings, they can't sell it, they can't buy anything new without paying huge amounts of taxes. And even more galling, without paying huge amounts of taxes to the Portuguese, which is like the cruelest cut of all, if they had to do that. But the problem is that the Mughal empire is not going to deal with what the East India Company themselves realize as being mere merchants. It is far beneath their prestige. The Mughal Empire is supremely conscious of their political position. They're not going to talk to any random merchant who comes and ask for a trade permit. What they'll get is the really basic, yes, you can unload your wares for us for about a month, and then off you go, that kind of a trade permit, and that's not what they want. So they're really conscious that what they need to do is convince James I that he needs to send an ambassador, someone who can talk king to king. So there's this huge idea of the universal brotherhood of kings and emperors that is a looming concept in European politics, as well as in Islamic politics of the period, that all rulers at some level can talk equitably to each other in a way that they can't to mere subjects. So an ambassador is a reflection of your king, and therefore they need a suitable ambassador to be sent out. So that's there, the East India Company's practical, pragmatic, trading, big money rationale. Roe has a different initiative altogether, and his is far more personal, in a way. He's a newly married man. He has had, like his best friend John Donne, not made the best choice in terms of his marriage decision, in the sense that he's married someone without her mother's permission Eleanor Rowe is headstrong. She is aristocratic, much higher up on the social category than him. She's also an early widow, but she falls in love with Rowe. Rowe falls in love with her. They decide to get married whether Eleanor's mother approves or not. So now everything hangs on Rowe recovering his fortunes, earning enough money so that he can keep Eleanor in style and convince his mother-in-law that he's a son-in-law worth having. A difficult challenge for
2: any (laughs) son-in-law. So Roe is heading off, leaving behind his new wife, going to India. And I suppose one more question before we land him there. On that journey, perhaps, how might he have been thinking about India? How did India figure in the knowledge and imagination of Europe before his trip?
1: That's such a good question, because this is exactly what fascinated me initially. We quite often think about these encounters almost as if they occur in a vacuum. There's a temptation to exoticize first encounters between people. One of the things that I really want to put across in the book, for instance, is that new worlds are hardly ever completely new. They're always based on things we have read before, things we expect. It applied as much to me as an Indian undergraduate coming to England as it does to Roe, who's taking that trip in 1614, reading up before he goes on this country that he's going to go to, this emperor he's going to negotiate with. But India itself is a really complicated concept. There is, of course, the geographical reason, idea of where India is, and that's partly borrowed from the Portuguese, because the English have very slight acquaintance with the coastal regions, not so much with the internal part of the subcontinent. But India is something much bigger. And that bigger concept of what India is inherited right from classical Greek and Latin literature to some extent. So even after Rose's return, Samuel Purchase, who's one of the great kind of collectors of travel accounts in the 17th century, prefaces his section on India by saying India pretty much means everything that is exotic and not European. And that, to some extent, is a very blunt statement, but true. And that's the whole rationale on which European travellers would go to North America and to South America and go, here, okay, this is India as well. So there's that expanse and fluidity about the concept of India that Roe is very familiar with. But then there's hard-nosed facts, because let's not forget that even though I've said that English acquaintance with India was very light touch till this moment, there were English travellers who had gone to India, and a few of them had made their own lives in India. So Roe, we know, is aware of this great collection of travel writing in the 16th century, an Elizabethan collection by the great Elizabethan geographer Richard Hacklett, and Hakluyt prints various letters from the first English voyage that had gone to India in 1583. So a good couple of decades before Rowe's journey. And Rowe would read all of those accounts. He would read also various other non-historical, non-geographical accounts. India crops up in all those plays that he, as an ambitious man about town would have seen in London. In Shakespeare's Midsummer Night's Dream, there's a little Indian boy who becomes the focus of the quarrel between the fairy king and the queen. And there's a reason for that, because India signifies wealth and treasure and fertility of various kinds. There are various other plays where India crops up as a shorthand for everything that is sumptuous and desirable.
2: And you're so right about him not being the first when I was an English undergraduate and went to India (laughs) in a small little town in North India, bumped into a school friend. And, (laughs) you know, that seems surprising at the time, although I doubt it really was. But by comparison, Roe bumping into a friend in India is surely surprising. But it shows that although we think of him as the first ambassador, he's hardly alone. There is a kind of cast of Englishmen around him there.
1: Yeah, absolutely. And bumping into friends is not what you would expect, but Roe does do that. But I guess you have one particular friend in mind.
2: I do. Yes, (laughs) I was thinking of the fool, as King James refers to him, Tom Corriott. Tell us about him. Tom Corriott
1: is this utterly idiosyncratic, slightly eccentric, very funny man who makes his career as this slightly foolish marginal figure that the wits of the court could bounce their wit off, essentially. Again, like Rowe, he's on the margins of that coterie of very bright young things in London in this period, who are talking to Ben Johnson, who are writing their own poetry, people like John Donne and various other kind of collection of poets and writers and thinkers. But Koryat figures out a way of creating his own brand within that group, and that is by tapping into this new thing called a travel wager. So basically, what you do is you make a wager. You say, I'm going to do this impossible thing of walking from A to B, and people either bet for or against you. And if you have a literary bent of mind, then you might even write a pamphlet about it, which is what Coriat does. So he makes his name by walking across continental Europe and writing a book about it. And then, of course, you have to look for the next big thing. This is the problem with that kind of early Tudor celebrity culture, that you have to go for the next bigger thing. And for Korea, that is right. I'm going to go walk my way through Persia to India to the Mughal emperor and then go to the country of Tamburlain what better showstopper of wager journey could you have? And Ro meets him halfway there. Koryat, by the way, spoiler alert, doesn't really get to complete that mission. But there's a moment where Ro, travel-weary, already suffering from various infections, including dysentery, is being carried in a palanquin by his Indian kind of contingent of people arriving in the city of Ajmer, where the emperor is. And he stopped outside the city in a field by the English merchants. But among that crowd of people he doesn't know is this one familiar face. And how wonderful, but also how unreal would that seem to someone who's already feverish, and travel-weary, to see this man he associates with the inns and taverns of London, there insisting on making him a long speech in welcome.
2: Already by this point, Rowe has established something of the way that he's going to deal with things, which is that he seems at times the most undiplomatic diplomat you could imagine. On arrival in Surat, he's refused to abide by a customs regulations, and his obstinacy, his combativeness are quite striking. But to him, he has what is a kind of, what you call a defining standoff. And the instant when it's been told before has been one of the indignities imposed on the English and the mogul capriciousness. What do you think we should make of it? And what do you think we should make of Rose's response to unfamiliar customs, both of the trading variety and <laughs> and the sort of norms. <laughs> <laughs> just to
1: set the scene a bit, this moment you're talking about is when Roe has landed in the port city of Surat, where the English are already familiar visitors due to their voyages. They've just set up a factory or a warehouse. And the Mughal governor says all the merchandise that has come in Roe's ship, along with the gifts for the emperor that Roe has brought from England, have to go through customs. And Roe responds by saying this is absolutely unheard of, this is a terrible insult to his ambassadorial status, and he's not having any of it. And he's very dramatic about this. There's one point where He's about to be searched and he jumps off his horse, grasps a couple of pistols, strings him on his sides and says that he's going to fight anyone who comes to examine his goods. So there is all of that background, I think. And you're absolutely right that for the few historians who've looked at this moment in the past, it has been told as a story of a conflict of two different cultures, Mughal bureaucracy against European diplomacy, or rather English diplomacy. The thing that becomes very apparent, though, once you start setting it against that context of wider memory that I talked about, the travelers' memories of what they expect, but also how other people in similar situations have behaved, is that what Roe is doing is entirely premeditated at this point. So very similar situation had occurred when the ultimate exemplar, perhaps, of foreign diplomatic presence in a hostile country had arrived in England. And this is the Spanish ambassador, Gondomar. When he arrived in England, he knew very well that relationship between Spain and England in James First court was strained and he had to do something about it. And his way of doing something about that was to stir up a diplomatic incident very similar to this, where he pretended to take offense at a very standard bureaucratic request that had been made of him, and then pulled the king, James I, into that negotiation so that he could build a relationship with James directly. And it's really interesting how Roe's encounter with the Mughal governor goes exactly down that same route. So Roe, in some ways, is trying to recreate exactly that same diplomatic maneuver. And there are multiple reasons for it. The most important one, of course, is that one about establishing credibility. England in India at this point is very minor player on the grand scale of things. And the English themselves are very well aware of it. In fact, when Roe goes to England, James I gives him a letter of instruction and he writes quite clearly in it whatever else you do, whether you get the trade for Man or not, make sure that the great Mughal Empire realizes that I'm also a great king and much loved by my subjects. So there's a matter of ego here. And Roe is very well aware that in order to make his arrival noticed and noticeable and memorable, he has to do something striking. And this is his striking diplomatic manoeuvre.
2: And that's interesting. So then he journeys to try and find the emperor and he's going to the court to meet the man who is the head of this empire, which you describe as being one of 100 million people with a revenue 100 times greater than England's annual revenue. And Roe, of course, is not actually that well and can't meet him immediately. But meanwhile, let us meet him.
0: I'm a spy, doing whatever spies do. But what am I gonna whip out of my pocket next? Careful. In this special month of Patented, we're celebrating the 70th anniversary of James Bond by having a look at some of the inventions that have changed espionage. From gadgets and their creators to the cars and cocktails that make Bond look oh so effortlessly cool. Join me, Campbell, Dallas Campbell, on Patented, A History of Inventions, where I will have my can on a string up against the walls of some of the best historians in this field. Look forward to your company. Hold up.
1: wherever you get your podcasts. Brought to you by History Hit.
2: Can you tell me about Jahangir, a little of his formation, his family, and what we can learn from that very rare of things, his first-person autobiographical narrative account of his reign?
1: Jahangir is absolutely fascinating, I think, and also not really given his fair share of scholarly attention by South Asian historians, Mughal historians, I think, till fairly recently. And there's a reason for that, which becomes clear if you set him on the timeline, essentially. So Jahangir, the fourth Mughal emperor, is a direct contemporary of James I. His father, Is the great Mughal emperor who really establishes the dynasty in South Asia, who is a direct contemporary of Elizabeth I. And Jahangir's son, who then becomes the emperor after him, Shah Jahan, whom we meet in Rose Embassy as the Crown Prince Khurram, is the one who builds the Taj Mahal. And there you can see the problem, because here is this man, enormously interesting but still not half as influential or charismatic as the ones who went before or after. In the same way that James I kind of falls through the gaps of it between Elizabeth I and Charles I. But Jahangir at this point is ruling a country that is hugely powerful. It stretches almost across the entire Indian subcontinent, apart from the southern peninsular region, That's about 1.24 million square miles, I think. And 150 million people, its revenue is about 100 times more than the annual revenue of England. So he's enormously wealthy. But what's also interesting about Jahangir is his curiosity. And this is, again, one of those moments where we suddenly realize how far our own historical approach to a past period is framed by historiography that has gone before us. Let me put it this way to you. Take an emperor who's interested in religion, in faith, in the sciences, does experimental science of his own, is keen on collecting curiosities from around the world. If you put that within the European context, the kind of person who comes to mind is someone like Rudolf, perhaps the second, someone like the great Florentine princes or the Medici's. In Jahangir's case, it is quite often dismissed as this Mughal emperor's curiosity about toys, his inability to pay attention to statecraft. So there's a conceptual and ideological weight that skews our perception, I think. And that's something that I really wanted to address in terms of this book. And you're absolutely right. One of the most interesting things that makes Jahangir claim center stage in some ways is the Jahangir Nama. This is the day-to-day memoir that Jahangir himself writes. The English do not get a mention.
2: I know, I love this. I love the fact that Roe writes page after page about Jahangir's court and Jahangir just doesn't even bother to mention that Roe is there no. throughout the four years that he's present.
1: Yep. I still remember when I first looked at the Jahangir Nama, so when I started unearthing that other perspective, going through pages of it and going, surely there should be something here. There's nothing. How can that be? You can juxtapose the dates because both of them keep diaries, essentially. So you can juxtapose the diaries and say, okay, Roe says 10th of March. Roe has got six pages of conversation between him and the Mughal emperor. Jahangir talks about the cranes who are nesting in his garden.
2: But what's marvellous is that faced with that problem, you have nevertheless been able to use the nama as a source to really enrich this account and bring a sort of another way of seeing the whole thing. And that's so important as we go along. But of course, your primary source is perhaps Rose journal. And I wonder if you felt a sense of tension at times. we have got this kind of question about how you resist the logic of it. How do you read against the grain of Rose? expectations and explanations of things.
1: I think that's one of those cases where bringing your literary kind of mindset to a textual artefact, which is what this journal is, is really helpful. Because one of the things as a scholar of early modern literature, you begin to realise is how often rhetoric and a particular kind of studied rhetoric plays its role in the way Roe is crafting this document. And what he's doing is a really interesting tightrope walk, essentially. On the one hand, he is eminently conscious of his role as his king's representative, as an ambassador. And that is both something that he needs to retain in order for his self-perception, his career, his later career as it will unfold. But on the other hand, he is also eminently conscious that his paymasters, after all, are people like Sir Thomas Smythe, the governor of the East India Company, whom he calls his kind of foster father at one point in a letter. Those are the people who are holding the purse strings, not James I., But those aren't the only two forces. There are other forces within that larger kind of landscape. And the other one that I'm particularly keen on excavating and have been particularly keen on excavating are the ordinary people caught up in this exchange. When we think about this empire, the establishment, the prehistory of the British Empire, or even about the East India Company itself, we think in terms of this huge, big picture of global forces huge institutions moving like in exorable multi-cogged wheels. But those cogs are still there. And those cogs are human beings with their own hopes and dreams and little petty jealousies and rivalries and all of that. So that's what was really fascinating for me, that I wasn't really only building on the journals of these two figures, Jahangir on the one side and Roe on the other but trying to bring in all these other voices, which otherwise tend to fall by the wayside when we're talking about the British Empire.
0: Can we
2: pick up on one of those small stories then? Can you perhaps tell me about the Jones affair? Ah.
1: So this is one of the trickiest things that Roe has to negotiate, actually, during his embassy. At one point where he's already having quite a lot of problem, actually, in negotiating with Prince Kurum, who's the crown prince. And you get this sense right from the beginning that they don't quite hit it off. There is something missing in the engagement between the two. And you can understand this on a human level, that sometimes you meet someone and you just don't get on with them. And I think that's what happens with Roe and Kurum. They just don't hit it off. But all of this blows up, essentially. Halfway through Roe's embassy, where he suddenly realizes that Someone who had come in his service has suddenly threatened to leave English service altogether and has decided to make his own way. Rose says in a different letter that he's decided to go away with this other Italian and we don't know exactly what happens there. But there is a scandal of some kind brewing. Prince Khurram steps into the breach and says, if this man doesn't want to stay in English service, that's fine. I'll employ him. And even more gallingly, he offers to pay him a kind of standard salary, which is a few times more than anything that Roe could have either afforded or even dreamt of paying anybody at this point. So there's a real crisis and a face-off between these two figures. And the Mughal emperor himself has to mediate at one point when it comes to almost breaking point, essentially. What's really interesting about this particular moment, though, is the way Rowe reacts because it hits a nerve with him. One of the greatest fears of English travellers throughout this period, and this again goes back to that idea of putting things in the context of memory, So if you were a schoolboy growing up in England, if you were a university student growing up in England, one of the main things your teachers would tell you about travel is that it tends to transform you. It does strange things to your head, to your identity, and particularly it tends to affect poor, hapless, innocent Englishmen because they're too simple and honest to resist all these wiles. So Roe is already conscious of that threat of transformation, particularly within. This sumptuous court where the levels of luxury are nothing like Englishmen had ever seen. And I think partly that anxiety and paranoia about translation, that idea of transformation of what can happen to you within this foreign court, erupts in this huge outburst of anxiety and fear and resistance from him that absolutely bubbles in the pages, in the lines of his diary at this point.
2: Perhaps another moment of encounter that we should talk about and really see humanity is that while she doesn't hit it off with Prince Kuram, he does seem to, at one point at least, hit it off with Jahangir. And there's that moment of connection in July 1616, which feels like the zenith of his embassy. Tell me about the miniature.
1: Rose starts off deeply suspicious of Jahangir. And one of the really interesting things, and you're absolutely right, is seeing that gradual evolution in his perspective of who the emperor is and what he is like as a human being. The thing that they both really bond over is art. Roe is interested in art. It's also pragmatic interest because most of the gifts that he has to take with him are essentially borrowed skills, gifts that England has imported from other places quite often, except miniature art. Now, this is a field in which English artists have always excelled. So he takes with him a few paintings, but he also takes with him a few miniatures. And there's a moment where in the informal evening darbar or meeting at the court, he shows one of these miniatures to Jahangir as an example of English art. And Jahangir is very appreciative. Jahangir, of course, is a connoisseur who's already had... Multiple moments of commissioning huge projects, essentially, of artwork from his own studio artists. He has an active and very multicultural, multilingual kind of studio of painters, artisans, goldsmiths, all kinds of people from different backgrounds. So Jahangir looks at this painting and wants it. He's not a man who's used to hearing no but this is a particular miniature that Rowe is not willing to part with. And he says in his diary, I told the emperor that this is the picture of a woman I had loved, who's now dead, and I cannot bear to part with it. So Jahangir says, that's fine. I will not take this from you. But tell you what, I'll ask my court painter to copy this. And if you can distinguish your original from my copies, you win. Let's have a bet. On this. And Roe agrees to this bet. So, this becomes one of those moments of actually a really interesting turning point where what was a political negotiation becomes a moment of social connection. Because let's face it, that moment when you're betting with someone is a way of bonding which goes beyond politics. And this is something that Roe himself is very familiar with within the political situation in England, for instance, where bets and wages were constantly happening. So Roe has this bet with Jahangir. He loses the bet, I think. And I say I think because there are two different versions of it. Roe himself says, I looked at the multiple copies that were made a week later and I couldn't distinguish the original from the copies But his chaplain, Edward Terry, who also writes a diary and writes a report later, says, well, I'm not sure about that. I think the ambassador was just being diplomatic.
2: You've mentioned the amazing kind of scale and wealth of the emperor, Jahangir. And that, I suppose, really becomes apparent to Roe when the court goes on the road and when the great Lashkar or army assembles and Roe has difficulties following it, what impression do you think this made on Roe?
1: I think the impression on him would have been very similar to impressions recorded by other Englishmen before and after, where quite often they are torn between the temptation to describe every bit of this amazing unfolding of hugely theatrical, sumptuous event that they're seeing in front of their eyes. But as some of them note, they also try to resist describing it because no one back home will believe them. They'll just simply think that they're exaggerating. So there's that sense of exceptional wealth and exceptional degrees of conspicuous consumption Writing about that, however, I think is quite problematic. And this is something that I really agonized and struggled over because it's important, I think, to give that impression of the grand scale at which the Mughals conducted their state affairs in a way. But it's equally important, I think, not to exoticize it and make it into something that's simply glistening and beautiful and other in some ways. And the point that I try to put across is about the way Roe negotiates his own stance when he looks at these moments of conspicuous consumption. What I'm really fascinated about is how much of that would have been familiar to him from European courtly practices, how much of it wouldn't, and what does he do in order to come to terms with that level of excess above what he's used to, in some senses. And that, again, is where his negotiation of words and rhetoric comes in, because he constantly tries to figure out ways in which he can record, but also pull it down to scale, to some extent.
2: Yes, I thought that was particularly insightful, that when he is dismissing or diminishing Indian opulence or customs, he's actually expressing his own frustrations as much as anything else. And he has quite a few frustrations. I wonder what you think in the end is the greatest obstacle to him. He's ill-equipped by the East India Company in many ways. Another thing that seems to threaten to sabotage his mission is a familiar lament, the behaviour of the English abroad. And people who have looked at this before, and it's very few people, but those who have looked before have suggested the sort of fundamental problem was that he was serving two masters, and then, of course, there's his behavior, his attitudes, his decision not to learn any local languages, that sort of thing. In the balance of all of this, what do you think is greatest problem? I think for Roe, and to some extent, I must say for
1: our current historiographical understanding of this very early period, the biggest problem is underestimating the political complexity and political savviness of the Mughal court itself. And that, again, is something that I try to unravel. One of the things that Ro really doesn't understand is the degree of political negotiation that Nur Jahan, the Mughal Empress, is undertaking throughout this period, the strings that she is pulling, the different kinds of drivers and impetus behind her political decisions as a direct rival to the crown prince, kuram For Roe, it becomes a soap opera of female jealousy, and that's it, in some senses. She's just the typical stepmother who can't stand her stepson, and therefore they're fighting, and the poor emperor is caught in the middle. It's dynasty, but in South Asia, that kind of a sense. Once you look into that larger geopolitical picture, it becomes very clear that in some ways Roe's expectation that he would get Essentially, what he wanted, an exclusive trading permit to conduct business in South Asia, was never going to happen. The Mughals were already keenly aware that the Portuguese in West India had been there for a while. They were also keenly aware that the Portuguese were a threat. It was entirely within their interests to play these European powers off against each other. An exclusive political trading permit would not do that for them. So Roe's lack of understanding of that larger political scenario, I think, is the major obstacle. But then there are those smaller ones, and let's not underestimate them. You've talked about the dual kind of masters that Roe was serving. But one thing that becomes very clear when you look at the East India Company in this period is that our kind of hindsight view of the East India Company as this huge corporation, doesn't really help to explain the situation that they found themselves in in this very early decade before it really finds its feet as an institution in India. So Roe is not simply serving two masters, there's also the factors or the merchants in India who are a third force there and the East India Company in London is extremely aware of that. They're conscious and in fact paranoid about their merchants going off and doing business by themselves or working against the interests of the company itself. So for Roe, that is a huge challenge, that his threat is not simply from the Mughal Empire, but the main resistance also comes internally from the East India Company and its complicated, gigantic makeup, essentially. In the end, then, is his mission at all a success? I think it depends on what we term as a success. If you think about it in terms of the really blunt, did he get an exclusive trading permit? Then, oh goodness, no, it's an abject failure. In fact, it's so much of a failure that the East India Company wouldn't even think about sending an ambassador for almost a century after him. Mind you, there's the civil war in England, which also slows things down. But as it is, it's a huge investment that doesn't bring them very many returns. So in that sense, it's perhaps not a success. But what Rose Embassy does, and this is where it becomes so important for us to really attend to it, is establish so much of the framework on which British presence and British rule and British action in India for centuries afterwards would be based. That framework of assumptions about Indian character, about the Mughal Empire, about religion, about faith, about languages, all of those are established during this embassy and by Roe himself
2: quite deliberately. And that's really interesting, I think. And yet, finally, Roe's advice that the English should pursue peaceful trade and not attempt to settle in India went completely unheeded. And I wonder, do you think this is the reason why, until you wrote this wonderful book, bar a few Victorian scholars, (laughs) and one or two others, this embassy has been largely forgotten?
1: I think that's certainly a major part of it. Rose's embassy in some ways, as I say in the book, it resists our narrative of empire. It's a false start. But also that advice, Rose's insistence that smooth, agile, commercial enterprise is the way to go when you're dealing with South Asia, rather than a sprawling colonial undertaking like the Portuguese have, is so counterintuitive to that teleological view of what empire would become that it just doesn't fit into the story. We should be really clear, though, that what Roe is suggesting here is not out of some ethical resistance to the idea of empire. It has very hard-nosed, pragmatic, economical rationale. Establishing an empire, establishing colonies, Rowe says, is expensive. So that's not the way to go where you already have a really complicated political structure. But Yes, in terms of later reevaluations of the empire, that insistence on commercial undertaking and Rose's insistence on this engagement with this political entity that is an equal, if not superior to England as it was in that particular period, sits very uneasily within that overview of empire, whichever perspective you might come to it from. And that is largely the reason why it just tends to get footnoted, perhaps, rather than being given centre stage.
2: Well, with that, we must leave Rowe, sending him back to his new wife and to the 40 years of a career that he has after his embassy to India. But it has been a real pleasure to talk to you about it. And it was an enormous pleasure to read your wonderful book, Courting India, And I do encourage people to pick it up. It's just so well done, so vividly told, so deeply scholarly and yet a wonderful read. And I enjoyed it very much as I enjoyed this conversation. Thank you. Thank you for inviting me. And thanks to my producer, Rob Weinberg, and my researcher, Esther Arnott. And thanks to you for listening to Not Just the Tudors from History Hit. We're always eager to hear your suggestions for podcast subjects. So drop me a line at notjustthetudors at historyhit.com or on Twitter at notjusttudors. Also, if you're in need of an extra hit between podcasts, do sign up to our newsletter, Tudor Tuesday. Details of how to do that are in the notes below this podcast. And please rate, rank, bestow multiple stars and comment on this podcast wherever you listen, including on Spotify. It really helps more people find not just the Tudors.
0: Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week.